You are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing. Could you believe such a thing? I am recording this on a Sunday afternoon. It's actually precisely 12.17 when I'm starting this, and I can't believe it. I woke up before 9 o'clock this morning, and my wife slept until 1 in the afternoon yesterday, and she's currently asleep on our couch because she's been very ill the last few days. Prayers, thoughts, good vibes for her, please. And yesterday, I was being very smart, and I hurt my leg like a dumbass. Didn't break anything, didn't sprain anything, but I landed on it really hard from a slightly tall distance, slightly high distance, I should say, and I had to walk up my front steps, and I laid down on the floor for a few minutes and then crawled to the bathroom to take a hot bath, even though apparently you're not supposed to do that because it could lead to bruising, but I did, and then I I proceeded to lay on the couch for a while with some ice. It's been an eventful weekend, hasn't it? But we are reading a couple of authors this podcast episode that you're listening to right now. Yes. We are going to be reading two essays. One is going to be uh, uh, Cowards from the Colleges by Langston Hughes. He'd appreciate me messing up the title. And Slip the Joke. No, Forget the Yoke, Slip the Joke. Maybe it's the other way around by uh, Ralph Ellison. You know, the guy who wrote Invisible Man, considered by many to be the great American novel. But, you know, who cares about that? The reason why I'm doing this is because I have an oral exam tomorrow. Yes, tomorrow is the day that it finally happens. The thing that I've been preparing for this whole time, for months, it's happening. And, you know, you can never be too prepared. Now, I did a series of podcasts over this these past few months that were related to the oral exam and what have you, but I really want to go over these two texts because they relate to another special text that I've been threatening to do on the podcast for a while, and I can't wait for my friend Chris to do it on his, and eventually he'll he'll probably get around to it. I'm going to take a sip of this cotton candy seltzer water. Yes, we are going to be reading Invisible Man pretty soon on the podcast, and these two texts directly relate to that text. Of course... Slip the Yoke, Forget the Joke, that came out as an essay in the late 60s. And Cowards from the Colleges by Langston Hughes was published the year that Ralph Ellison started at Tuskegee. Yes. So, I have a presentation that I did in my class that I'm going to do for you fine folks. So this episode is not going to be me rambling for a long time. This is going to be me getting down to the nitty gritty with this text. And I'm going to read selections from it, of course, but I also want to do this presentation because why not? We start with a quote from the essay. It seems to me that the day must come when we will not be proud of our Jim Crow centers built on the money docile and lying beggars have kitted white people into contributing. Now an overview of this that I want to provide for you is Hughes criticizes the ultra-conservative administrations in black colleges as their rules suppress students, thus transforming them into quote-unquote Uncle Toms. Last episode on the podcast we discussed that term because I was talking about a conversation that I had with my professor after giving this presentation because I used the term Uncle Tom in a way that he felt wasn't correct. I didn't use it directly towards someone and I was obviously quoting this text indirectly but he wanted to use it as a teachable moment for everyone in the, in the classroom. And you can go listen to that episode and figure it out. 
These colleges embrace segregation and do not openly profess a desire for racial equality. And since these schools solicit and accept white donations, their strict social ordinances and forced church services and censorship of students and professors play into whites' fears by reforming black students. If you're not familiar with The Invisible Man, and we'll obviously get into this as we get into the novel over the course of May, but in the first couple of chapters especially, the I Am is dealing directly with rich and powerful white people. Now, I want to say it's in the second chapter when he gives a ride to an elderly uh, donator to his college. And he inadvertently exposes this man to things that he considers reprehensible. But beyond that, he gets in trouble for it by Dr. Bledsoe, the uh, president or dean of the university. And this is where everything falls apart for the I am at first. <laughs> he, he has many, many points in this novel where things fall af- apart for him. Don't get me wrong. But this is directly correlated to this essay because the whites that are donating to these colleges are hoping that they are going to reform these black men and in some instances, black women into more pro- what they would consider productive members of their society and that they are subservient to whites. They are agreeable to whites and they don't exhibit, exhibit any behavior that they would consider beneath them as white people. Thus you have these strict rules and regulations on this campus uh, across many black colleges because of their donors and what those donors want. So the next portion of this is called rules and regulations. And the first thing that I, I put on here was that campuses banned smoking, card playing, dancing, and discouraged relationships between men and women on campus. And Hugh states, one of the objects in not permitting dancing, I divined, seems to be to keep the sexes separated. And in our Negro schools, the technique for achieving this Boys not walking with girls, young men not calling on young ladies, the two sexes sitting aisles apart in chapel. If the institution is coeducational, in this technique, Negro schools rival monasteries and nunneries in their strictness. So, why would co- the college administration not want boys and girls, young men and young women, to cohabitate in the same space? to socialize in the same space well the first thing that came to mind was they don't want any unwanted pregnancies so one of the best ways to keep our young women from dropping out or going to class with a pregnant belly (laughs) that sounds wrong is to keep the men and the women separate obviously Alcorn College dismisses students by gender to avoid potentially romantic socialization. Hughes elaborates, When I had finished my lecture at Alcorn, the chairman tapped a bell and commanded, Young ladies with escorts now pass, and those few girls, fortunate enough to receive permission to come with a boy, rose and made their exit. Again, the bell tapped, and the chairman said, Unescorted young ladies now pass, and in their turn... The female section rose and passed. Again, the bell tapped. Young men may now pass. I waited to hear the bell again, and the chairman said, Teachers may leave. Hampton College prohibits women from receiving calls from men until they receive permission from the dean of women. Hughes recalls a married woman leaving her husband on hold while he was calling long distance because she had to wait for the dean of women to grant her permission. And Hughes laments the required daily chapels, weekly prayer meetings, and Sunday services. In summary, 
Many of our institutions apparently are not trying to make men and women of their students at all. They are doing their best to produce spineless Uncle Toms, uninformed and full of mental and moral evasions. That is where the phrase Uncle Tom came into play. And in the next section, Ignoring Current Events, Hughes references the Scottsboro Boys. In 1931, nine African-American teen boys were accused of raping two white women. Now, there are a couple of things I want to mention here. Number one, I said nine African-American teen boys. Now, according to my friends and colleagues in academia, we no longer use the term African-American in our research. We use the term black with a capital B, followed by usually the word people. In this case, I would say uh, black teen boys, or maybe just, I feel like black boys just sound wrong, honestly. But... That, see, that's the thing. I, I got into this discussion um, pretty recently about terminology and how it changes and how, you know, there are people who make decisions on this and what should be appropriate for academic conversations. Because when you're writing essays and articles, you're supposed to be contributing to the conversation. So, someone, maybe a group of people, got together and decided, and they may not have even gotten together, maybe it was just something that several academics in this field came to the same conclusion on, but someone did decide that in academia, for our articles, we are no longer going to use the term African American to describe black people. So... Not that long ago on Twitter, there was a whole debacle because some guy said, I feel that people of color is an offensive term, and I think we should stop using it. And he gave many different examples, but someone tweeted at him, you know that it was a black person who came up with the term people of color. And that kind of calls into question, who is making all the decisions for a group of people? and their terminology. For instance, I've discussed this before on the podcast. I shouldn't have to keep coming back to it, but it's an example. Last year, I wrote an essay about I Like Guys, which I covered on the podcast prior to doing the essay. And in my essay, I use the term, I use both gay and I use the term homosexual, which according to the professor is no longer accepted or um, encouraged to be used in academic scholarship. Thus, I now try my best to never use that term. But the thing is, is that what about the gay people who use that term? What about the gay people who use that term in their scholarship? in their research. So who came up with, and I saw that it's on GLAD's website that the reason behind not using the term homosexual is because it sounds clinical and it's something that that straight people have used to qualify being gay as an illness or something that's diagnosable. It's just, it's not, nice <laughs> within the context of straight people using it and uh, as a derogatory way of describing gay people and their lifestyle this is a lot to talk about for a straight white guy i'm talking about both sexuality and race on the podcast today so uh, prepare for no one to listen but anyway I, I i got off track but that's what this podcast is all about but I was talking about the Scottsboro Boys. I didn't know about that before I, I read this essay. So, despite the high-profile case, many students and teachers at Tuskegee either deny knowing about this or they don't want to discuss it. And Juliet Derrick Cott, 
the dean of women at Fisk University and a student were denied treatment by a white hospital and died after a car collision. The Hampton students tried to organize a protest on campus and Major Brown, the dean of men, questions the the validity of these claims and reveals the school frowns on any sort of protest. The plans are scrapped because students fear expulsion. The final paragraph in this section is concerning the students' reactions to campus policies and potential protest. Hughes reveals another news item tells how President Gandy of Virginia State College for Negroes called out the cracker police of the town to keep his own students from voicing their protest as to campus conditions. Rather than listening to just grievances, a Negro president of a large college sends for prejudiced white policemen to break his students' heads if necessary. The next section is a blind eye towards inequality. Hughes notes, Tuskegee's president, Dr. Motten, announces himself in favor of lower wages for Negroes under the NRA, and Claude Burnett, one of his trustees, voices his approval of the proposed code and differentials on the basis of color. Tuskegee has a whites-only guest house. This is something that is referenced in Invisible Man. Black newspapers and magazines on Fisk campus are banished. You cannot get them. Hughes attempts to meet with the white superintendent of a black school system in North Carolina, and the office secretary actively ignores his presence. Yeah, this man was here as a journalist, a guest of the school, and the white secretary just ignored him. So that... That's nice. Uh, One of the Hughes peers at Lincoln tells him, Your facts are fine, 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 but listen, son, you mustn't say everything you think to white folks. Which makes me want to read the opening paragraph of Cowards from the Colleges, which was published in uh, August of 1934. Let no one who reads this article write me a letter demanding, but why didn't you bring out some of the good points? For the express purpose and intention of this article is to bring out the bad points, some of the bad points, and many of our centers of Negro education today. Two years ago on a lecture tour, I visited more than 50 colored schools and colleges from Morgan College in Baltimore to Prairie View in Texas. Everywhere I received with the greatest kindness and hospitality by both students and faculties. In many ways, my nine months on tour were among the pleasantest travel months I've ever known. I made many friends, and this article is in no way meant as a disparagement of the courtesies and hospitality of these genial people, who nevertheless uphold many of the existing evils which I'm about to mention, and whose very geniality is often a disarming cloak for some of the most amazingly old-fashioned moral and pedagogical concepts surviving on this continent. I want to stop here because I realize something. Someone's going to listen to this. They're not going to really know who Langston Hughes is. They might recognize the name, but there's potential for someone listening to this and hearing me read this stuff and not knowing that Langston Hughes is a black man. Why do I have to bring this up? Because there are people out there who don't understand context. So I'm providing you some context here, okay? He's black. If you didn't get that by now, if you think he's just a a white guy who's showing up on black campuses, well, you're wrong. Again, I have to mention this because there's someone out there, believe me you, who will not get the fact that Langston Hughes is not white. Which, I've had experiences like that on Twitter. We're talking about Twitter again. I mentioned American Psycho in some context. I think I was talking about how the marketing of saying, if you like this or that, you might like my book. And I was discussing American Psycho in this context, and someone said, well, you may not want to use American Psycho as an example because it's kind of homophobic. And I 
I said, well, how did you, how do you feel that this is homophobic? And they read it. They read, they, they said they read it and that they, they stopped because they felt it was offensive and homophobic. And I said, well, you know that Brett Easton Ellis is a gay man, right? And he said that Patrick Bateman is obviously a closeted man. Actually, actually, I'm pretty sure what Brett Easton Ellis said, the author of American Psycho, said that he's a so obviously a closeted homosexual. That is what the author said. I want to give a direct quote. Because context is important. Now, I bring up American Psycho. There's a question of intent by the author. And in our our little small world of English academia, we often ignore the author's intent. Although, oftentimes, if you look into the author's intent, you will find what you're looking for. Now, you know the intent of cowards from the colleges, so I don't really need to distress that anymore. I'm going to go back to my presentation because I have a conclusion here. Hughes' point. Black academia is actively avoiding radicalizing their students in any way that displeases their white donors. This does not help advance minority rights or properly educate students on their history, place in American society, or how they can affect change. Playing along with White's insistence on segregation, denial of health care to black citizens, banning typical social behavior in required church meetings, removes any individual identity which effectively erases their race beyond what whites expect and creates a series of Jim Crow centers rather than academic institutions. Again, Hughes uses the term Jim Crow centers in the essay. These restrictions and enforced routines force black students to perpetuate a performative lifestyle in which they assume rich whites are their primary audience. Black schools participate in the oppression of their own race for the sake of funding. Thus, Hughes perceives these schools as... Um, I'm not going to say this next term because it's the one that I've already discussed, which transform the population into subservient citizens who respect their place in society rather than question racism. Before we transition to the next text, I would be remiss to not read a little bit more from Cowards from the Colleges, if you will indulge me. If I took this tour with the principal or some of the older students, I would often learn how well the school was getting on in spite of the depression and on how pleasant relationships with the white Southerners in the community. But if I went walking with the younger teacher or with the students, I would usually hear reports of the institution's life in ways that were far from happy. For those of us who have read the Negro papers or who have had friends teaching in our schools and colleges, have been pretty well aware of the lack of personal freedom that exists on most Negro campuses. But the extent to which this lack of freedom can go never really came home to me until I saw and experienced myself some of the astounding restrictions existing at many colored educational institutions. To set foot on dozens of Negro campuses is like going back to mid-Victorian England or Massachusetts Massachusetts, in the days of the witch-burning Puritans. You know, I go to a school that is very, fairly liberal with how the students can or should conduct themselves. Uh, the, the two instances that I know of issues on campus with students getting disciplinary actions taken against in terms of expulsion um, actually there's just one that comes to mind because the other thing happened at a high school uh, a student showed up to a Halloween party uh, dressed as Michael Jordan now you may think well that sounds fairly innocent uh, except that he was white and he used blackface, not only on his face, but I'm pretty sure he used it on his skin that you could see above the jersey that he was wearing. And 
What's funny to me is that this guy was, I think he was in a fraternity. He obviously had someone help him put on this makeup. So he had more than one person to bounce this idea off of. So what the fuck? I mean, someone encouraged him in this, obviously. This this person does not just represent himself as a ignorant person, but a whole group of people, perhaps an entire house full of people on campus, technically off campus, but it's literally across the street. I mean, the thing about hatred and racism and sexism is that when one person says something, they're not in a bubble. They have people around them who support what they say. And it's not just old men who are dying in their children's homes and their 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 sons and daughters are rolling their eyes at them. No. There are men and women who are engaging in this dialogue each day. And they're condemning people for the way that they look or the way that they handle well the way that they engage romantically with other people despite the fact that this is not on my old exam list because I was afraid that if I put change the yoke slip the joke well change the jokes and slip the yoke that is the proper title of it you're going to hear me mess it up several more times it's not on my oral exam list but it it directly relates to Invisible Man. It provides a lot of context for it. I don't know how much of it we're going to read outside of my presentation. My presentation is six pages long, and it covers it pretty well, I'd like to think. Uh, humble brag. This, contextually, is in response to a man named Stanley Edgar Hyman. We're going to get into this as I read the, the presentation, but what you need to know is that Ralph Ellison was a very respected literary figure. His novel, Invisible Man, came out in 1952. So people in academia were teaching it into the 60s and beyond, of course. But it's interesting when a man, an author, rather, is alive as his creation is popular... Because with literature, we find that while it may experience some popularity, the cold hard truth of it is is that most canonized authors tend to see an uprise in people taking an interest in their work after they die. But Ralph Ellison got to see it all unfold during his lifetime. So that means that he got to endure people interpreting his work and what he would consider misinterpreting his work. So this also ties in directly to American history. I have John Adams, the series, which I just rewatched this week on my oral exam list. And he discusses the fact that America, in its infancy contributed to masking and sort of a, a racial cloak, a racial disguise to prevent suspicion and perhaps even engage in mockery. Now, of course, I'm, I'm also referencing blackface, but in the instance of early American history, the protesters that went and dumped tea into the Boston Harbor during the Boston Tea Massacre dressed up as Native Americans. So they were actively engaging in this tradition that extends well into the 20th century. As I dis Well, into the 21st century because we just discussed this gentleman who showed up to a party in blackface. So to start this all off, I have a quote from Ellison. America is a land of masking jokers. We wear the mask for purposes of aggression as well as for defense when we are protecting the future and preserving the past. Now, an overview of this is Ellison responds to his supposed friend, 
Stanley Edgar Hyman, who writes on the folk tradition, which interprets Invisible Man through the lens of the trickster archetype. Hyman relies too, high, too heavily on his interest in archetype hunting, which neglects the actual intent and meaning of Ellison's work. Ellison initially hones in on Hyman's interpretation of the darky entertainer and refers to the blackface that white and black performers don as the mask. I should say that the term darky entertainer is directly from Ellison and not me. He ties this into American folklore as the mask was an inseparable part of the national iconography. By the way, I guess I need to say this again. Ralph Ellison was a black man. He was not a white author writing about uh, an African-American or black character. And he's not discussing race through a white lens. He is a black man. Ellison refutes Hyman's assertions because African-Americans are also an heir of the human experience, which is literature and cannot conflate that with the living folk tradition. As I have been saying for a very long time, and by a very long time I mean about a year, and you can see this in the John Adams series, African American history is American history. To separate the two is to ignore the fact that African Americans, black Americans, have contributed greatly through both suffering and strife to the creation and the perpetuation of this nation. I sound like John Adams right now, but when Abigail Adams walks into the White House, she notes that slaves built the nation's capital, and she says, what possible good can come from such a place. Now, mind you, John Adams was against slavery. He did not own slaves. On top of that, despite the fact that his friend Thomas Jefferson was all for slavery and owned uh, as many as 600 slaves, apparently, and engaged in uh, rape, the rape of multiple uh, of his slaves, uh, allegedly. Um, although there's DNA evidence that proves that he did, in fact, have an affair, a very long affair, or relationship, rather, if you want to call that, with Sally Hemings. Although the consent of that is up for debate because of the master-slave dynamic. This is all related to Ellison, believe it or not, because our founding fathers had the blood of black people on their hands because they perpetuated slavery in this nation and despite the fact that eventually they banned the import of slaves into the country that did not stop slavery um, it's not as if if you banned slaves from being brought into the country it would stop white farm and plantation owners from creating more and they might contribute to the creation of more like Thomas Jefferson did. The purpose of this essay is to respond to misinterpretation. The essay contains a preface acknowledging Ellison originally wrote this as a letter to Stanley Edgar Hyman and Ellison appears gracious that Hyman took time to even evaluate his work but he is quick to refute what Hyman states. Hyman's favorite archetypal figure is the trickster, but I see a danger here. From a proper distance, all archetypes would appear to be tricksters and confidence men, part god, part man. No one seems to know he, she, its true name. Ellison pinpoints Hyman's analytical flaw in that if he looks for something specific in any text, especially broad archetypes, he will find them and therefore misinterpret the, the text. Certainly, we should not approach Negro folklore through the figure Hyman calls the darky entertainer, for even though such performers, as he mentions, appears to be convenient guides 
they lead us elsewhere. I must again reiterate that was a quote from the essay, not me. Ellison hearkens to the original intent of the quote-unquote darky entertainer as the interpretation of black behavior through white performers through blackface. He acknowledges that African Americans had to don the same mask in order to play the same part even if they already had dark skin. Thus, this role, which makes use of the Negro idiom, songs, dance motifs, and wordplay, does not originate in African American culture but white attraction to black symbolism. I mentioned Get Out during my presentation because there is a fetishization of black people by white men and white women. Now, again, I can't believe that I have to state this because I know someone's going to hear that and, and get the wrong idea. I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody but myself, and I'm interpreting this text as Ellison would probably see fit. And also, I want to pinpoint this, that I don't think anyone else got from that quote. The fact that black men in the late 19th century, early 20th century, had to wear blackface on stage. And some of them embraced it, but the thing is, is that they had to reappropriate something that was appropriated, i.e., their skin color, from white people, and then act like white people acting as if they were black. So, African Americans in folklore. The Negro is reduced to a negative sign that usually appears in a comedy of the grotesque and the unacceptable. Ellison writes about caricatures of African Americans in minstrel shows, which ignores the tragedy of slavery that relates directly to the moral heart of the American social drama. Embracing the image of African Americans is a major oversight considering the suffering of American slaves that helped build the country. The mask was an inseparable part of the national iconography. His costume made us of the sacred symbolism of the American flag, but he could only appear with his hands gloved and white and his face blackened. Blackface served as a mask, as a means to create a different identity for comic catharsis and repress the white audience's awareness of its moral identification. Whites take on the mask to enact the fantasy which blacks later take on in order to make a living as entertainers. A contemporary example is a comedian placing the title of comedian with a capital C in the forefront of their act so that they can get away with saying ludicrous or offensive things. And I brought this up in my presentation. The fact that the Joker as a character in all these Batman movies, actors love playing the Joker. And if you wonder why, you can go back to Jack Nicholson and how he actually improvised a lot of his lines as the Joker, and he brought a, a great performance, but the reality is that he was saying horrible things, doing horrible things, and using the mask of the Joker to get away with doing them, to get away with saying them. And that is exactly what white performers did in blackface. If they had, let's say, I'm going to make this really disgusting and, and grotesque. Let's say they had a desire to have sex with their sister. And I'm talking about a white man wanting to have sex with his sister. But he can't publicly say that. So what does he do? He puts on blackface and starts joking about how he wants to fuck his sister. And the white audience at the time thinks that he's just making fun of a black man. It's a disgusting act to engage in, not only because of the racism involved, but because the white people are attributing their own negative or, or perverse thoughts to black Americans. Before I proceed with more of the presentation, I do want to read a little bit from a paragraph at the beginning of this essay. 
archetypes like Taxus seem doomed to be with us always, and so with literature one hopes. But between the two, there must needs be the living human being in a specific texture of time, place, and circumstance who must respond to make choices, achieve eloquence, and create specific works of art. Thus, I feel that Hyman's fascination with folk tradition and the pleasure of archetype hunting leads to a critical game that ignores the specificity of literary works. If you didn't get it, Ralph Ellison was a pretty smart cookie. Let's let's go on with the presentation. The mask function was to veil the humanity of Negroes, thus reduced to a sign, and to repress the white audience's awareness of its moral identification with its own acts and with human ambiguities pushed behind the mask. Ellison tells Hyman he is not only wrong regarding his interpretation of Invisible Man, but the place of African Americans in American folklore and tradition. And this interpretation is offensive in scope. Hyman believes Ellison is leaning into folklore tradition with no regard for other American writers rather than the actuality in Ellison appropriating those tropes for his own means of critique. Especially, these, this essentially, <laughs> this essay breaks down the background of Invisible Man as a response to America as a concept because Hyman misses the mark. I think that's a great line because his name is Hyman. He missed the mark. Oh, yeah. The next section of this is called White Man's Relish, Black Man's Gall. There's a word that in, in this text, and I have it because it's, it's contextual. It's not a word that I'm going to say. You're going to know exactly what word I'm talking about in the context, but let it be known that it is... Within the context of this essay, I was not using it, and it was referring to a specific character who has this word in his name from a very well-known Mark Twain novel. I'm referring to Jim. Uh, If you're wondering, Jim, who's Jim? Jim is in Huckleberry Finn. Wait, I don't remember Jim and Huckleberry Finn. His first name is Jim, but there's a... A descriptor, a, 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 an a, it's not an adjective. Uh, could you call it an adjective-noun? Uh, because it's not an adverb, it's not an adjective. Uh, there's no such thing as an ad-noun. It's just a, a nickname. It's a very unfortunate nickname, too. But I'm not going to say it, okay? So we can just get that out of the way. Ellison critiques Mark Twain's character, Jim as a poorly conceived satirical take on the minstrel blackface performer because Jim lacks complexity. Twain writes Jim as Huckleberry's peer as they share the same mental age despite that Jim is a grown man. Twain likely experienced African-American men being treated as boys rather than men, so he never attempts to correct this with Jim. The character falls too close to white's expectations of blacks in this era, and this fails as satire. Uh, Again, if I was writing this in uh, a published academic format, I would not say white's expectation of blacks. I would say white's expectations of black people, with a capital B. I am noting that because I want to drive home the fact that our language evolves. Therefore, we need to evolve with it. Satire requires an actual critique of society along with humor. When the white man steps behind the mask of the trickster, his freedom is circumscribed by the fear that he is not simply mining a personification of his disorder and chaos, but that he will become, in fact, that which he intends only to symbolize, and thus lose that freedom which, in the fluid, traditionless, traditionless, classless, and rapidly changing society, he would recognize as the white man's alone. The stereotypes whites incorporate into their blackface acts become part of white tradition rather than actually interpreting African-American culture. 
The man who puts on the mask uses it as a shield to ventilate his own thoughts and desires society normally rejects because now the audience assumes it is a parody. Thus, the blackface acts as protection for white performers vocalizing their true desires. We talked about this before. The next section is entitled, The Mask is American Tradition. Ellison states, when Americans revolted against Britain, they dressed as Native Americans and dumped tea off a shipping boat. Ben Franklin's Ben Franklin allowed the French to mistake him for Rousseau's natural man. Hemingway, Faulkner, and Lincoln all played into acts that masked their true identities. Thus, Ellison points out that the mask is American tradition. In short, the motives hidden behind the mask are as numerous as the ambiguities the mask conceals. Circling back to Hyman's originalist assertion, Ellison says, Novelists in our time are more likely to be inspired by reading novels than by their acquaintance with any folk tradition. This is true. The Negro-American writer is also an heir of the human experience, which is literature, and this might be well more important to him than his living folk tradition. To pinpoint African-American folklore as the inspiration behind Invisible Man or suggest that Ellison relies on the trickster archetype ignores not only the true intent of the novel, but the broader American tradition. Hyman's main flaw is that he assumes the novel only encapsulates an African-American experience rather than an American who happens to be black. And the prejudices the I.M. encounters as a result of his race. If whites wore masks at the Boston Tea Party, then our country was partially founded on the concept of deception. When they wear blackface, they do so not only to demean blacks and broadcast their hidden desires, but also because they fear the black man. However, this point is Ellison schooling Hyman because he took such public liberties with the text. And I wanted to provide some examples from the text in my presentation, so here we go. The grandfather in The Invisible Man is a weak man who knows the nature of his oppressor's weakness, and he advises the I Am of denial and rejection through agreement. He actually tells him in the novel to live with your head in the lion's mouth. More important to the novel is the fact that he represents the ambiguity of the past for the hero. The I.M. spends the novel's duration searching for power with no true identity. Part of the reason that he is unaware of the past is because he never turns to confront it. He believes that he is above the established path of his family, and he does not truly analyze what his grandfather meant until he enters darkness. Yes, it takes him the entire novel to figure out what the hell his grandfather was saying, and it's kind of a, a valid question. Does he ever figure out what his grandfather was saying? I would say that he actually figures it out and he subverts it because <coughs> fuck, I had to save that clip of me coughing for another podcast because you know I'm going to use it again. I don't know why I started coughing. I don't even know what the fuck I was talking about. So... <laughs> I forgot. Okay. I'm sorry. I was getting to the point and then my body revolted against me. Oh, God. Oh, I was talking about the fact that the I am is supposed to live with his his head in the lion's mouth. What does he do to Roz the Destroyer at the end of the novel? He throws Roz's spear back at him and pierces Roz's mouth with it. He makes the spear go through this guy's head. So, in that moment, what did he do? He didn't live with his, his head in the lion's mouth. No. He subverted what his grandfather told him to do, in a literal and figurative sense. So, Ellison states that the advice is actually a riddle that directs the novel's plot. Reinhard is actually more apt for Hyman's assertion of the trickster archetype and the Invisible Man. As a character, the audience never directly meets him, but learns about him through others when the I.M. assumes his identity. The I.M. wears a mask as a means of survival. 
Ellison does not shy from the traditional folklore as much as reinterpret and critique it. When Hyman invokes Br'er Rabbit as inspiration for Invisible Man, he misses the mark entirely. Ellison refers to the I Am as the novel's hero and likens him, likens him more to Ulysses. I would not compare the I Am to Ulysses. I'm going to take a sip of this water. I think that the I Am is, is creating a, a new trope of sorts. He is the hero of the novel, of course. But I think that what Ellison has done is effectively create a genre of fiction with Invisible Man. Because I don't think that a novel like American Psycho could exist without Invisible Man. Because when you really dissect Invisible Man and how it participates in narrative and plot, it follows a plot for sure. There's a narrative going on, but ultimately it's almost like an inverted hero's journey. I'll get more into that when we talk about Invisible Man. I may not stand by that statement, but when you think about it, the introduction of the novel, which is really chapter one, before the Battle Royale, before the grandfather's advice, we start at the end of the novel, where he's talking about living in this... I cannot remember... See, here's the thing. At the, the end of the novel, he goes into a coal cellar where it's dark and he's trapped there for a long time. I think in the introduction, he's not in the coal cellar anymore, but he's in another dark place that he's illuminated with a bunch of light bulbs. And he is, I think it's one thirteen hundred and one, if I'm not mistaken. I probably am mistaken. It's a lot of light bulbs. But he's literally stealing power. This is something that he pursues in the figurative sense throughout the novel. He pursues power. He's now stolen it. And he has somehow invoked a superpower. He talks about assaulting a man under a street lamp and nobody sees him. And the man that he assaults acts as if no one was actually there. Is Ellison writing a superhero novel? Is he writing a horror novel? Is he writing a science fiction novel? No. In reality, why is the I am invisible? Is it because of society? Is it because of the white man's gaze? Is it because white men are not going to be able to see him for who he really is, his aspirations, where he came from? Are they just going to see his color? There's a lot of debate as to, as to why he is the invisible man. But we're going to engage into that more. Uh, I, I got sidetracked. I wanted to specifically address my assertion that it is an inverted hero's journey. Because the first big event in the novel is the Battle Royale. And then in the end of the novel, before he reaches enlightenment, he enters his dark night of the soul, quite literally, when he enters the coal cellar. Now, there are multiple moments in the novel where he enters his dark night of the soul, for sure. And there are key figures that he goes to after the Battle Royale. There's Dr. Bledsoe, there's Lucius Brockway, and then there's, there's Jack, there's Roz. These are important figures who represent different forms of power throughout the novel. And what does he realize in the end? Does he gain power the same way that they gain power? Not exactly. But 
he realizes that the people in power, like Dr. Bledsoe and Luscious Brockway, history's not going to remember them. They're going to be forgotten. So their power is momentary, and it's not important. There's no significance to it beyond their little worlds. You've heard this term, big fish in a little pond? Yes. Big fish in little ponds, guess what happens to big fish in little ponds? They die eventually. They don't live forever. They don't maintain that power. And then what does that power mean after they're gone? What did they contribute to society through that power? That's the real question. So Ellison's points. Though Ellison never explicitly states this, Hyman's essay borders on racism as he assumes Ellison incorporates the the trickster archetype and relies heavily on African-American folklore. Ellison not only refutes this, but points out his actual influences. American culture, as we know it, cannot exist without the black American, as whites enslaved them, parried them in minstrel shows, and perpetuated the mask as a means to shield themselves rather than openly expressing their desires. Despite that Invisible Man is not only about the black experience in America, Ellison incorporates Mark Twain's character Jim as an example of how poorly whites historically interpret African Americans, and the I.M. does not possess those attributes. Despite that the I.M. is a black man, his story reflects more than the tropes and archetypes Hyman theorizes. I'm done. I'm done talking about this. I want to talk about something else. Usually I give this little spiel at the beginning of the podcast, but uh, I'm going to ramble for a, a few moments if you will indulge me. I have wondered about saving this portion of the podcast for later in the podcast anyway, but I'm not going to make any changes, mind you. But it just so happened to happen during this episode. I have a hair right at the corner of my lip that has been bothering me this whole fucking time. I hate my facial hair so much. So... If you would like to support the podcast, I don't have a Patreon, I don't have a GoFundMe, I don't have any of that shit. What I have for you, if you would like to support the podcast, because I do it for free, it's not a professional podcast, I'm not getting paid to do this, it's just me and a microphone. You can buy my books on Amazon. I have poetry, I have novels, I have short stories. They're 99 cents on Kindle for the most part. Now, my novels are about 6 bucks on Kindle. On paperback, they're a little bit more. But you can buy most of it on for 99 cents on Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can download the Kindle app to your phone. If you would like to support in a more passive way, you can listen to my music. You can look up Lurking Vowel on Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, wherever you stream music. It's there for you to listen to. I doubt you have to pay anything because you probably already have a subscription. Beyond that, what's going on with me? I have been working on the the, the Birch novel. I added a bunch of shit to it. It's going great. I have gotten to chapter 30, and I don't know what to do next. So I might pull... Uh, what I did in uh, Price of the Trinity and kind of write an entirely different story in the second half. But we'll see. But I am also thinking about recording a new Lurking Vowel album. This process may take a few days. It may take the whole month. It may take the whole summer. Who knows? But I know those of you enjoy my music and you're out there, I know you are, you can look forward to my second album released this year because I've, I have a habit of releasing more than one album a year. But I've done pretty good. I've had Stuck in the Elevator this year, and late last year I had Sunken Sphere. This time, what am I going to do? I know that I'm going to go back to a bit more of an ambient sound. See... A few episodes ago, I, I talked about my Paul Reed Smith 
and I got that explicitly for the purpose of recording. I was actually playing my Strat the other day, and I was having a fucking ball doing it, but the thing about the Strat is that the single coils on it are fucking noisy, and it doesn't push the amp the way that the PRS does, because the PRS has very loud pickups. So prepare to hear some awesome ambient music. And it'll probably go in different directions. I have a lot of different ideas that I've allowed to percolate in my head. And I purposefully pushed off recording anything for the most part of the semester. Because I want it to be fresh. I don't want it to be a repeat of what I've been doing. Although, if it's ambient, who knows. Thank you for listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway. Happy weekend, happy week, happy writing.